the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome, listeners. Today's guest is Madeline McHugh. Maddie's a PA student who was a recent winner of one of the PAOS Susan Lindahl Memorial Scholarship Awards for 2021. I'm having her on today to discuss her case study that she presented as part of the award criteria, and that's a 13-year-old with bilateral lateral femoral condyle osteochondritis desiccans, also called OCD. Maddie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here. What made you decide to do a study on OCD? Is this someone you had seen in clinic or just something you were curious about? I have um, kind of a strong background in pediatric ortho before I went to PA school. So when I was applying for the scholarship, I figured, you know, I should kind of stick to what I know, which is the ped side of orthopedics. And OCD lesions are a little bit of a hot topic in that area. They're easily missed sometimes, or they can be brushed off as like patellofemoral pain or Osgood-Schlatter, as well as like the guidelines for them. There's no real true standard of care. So I figured it'd be a good topic to kind of write about. This patient of mine is actually pretty close to me. I'm very close to their whole family now. He ended up having kind of a long course of treatment when I was seeing him there for multiple years. And then we ended up having him join our KIP program. So I used to be the knee injury prevention program coordinator, which is kind of this program designed to decrease knee injuries in female athletes, like ACL tears, things like that. So we just work on improving like strengthening and biomechanics. And we ended up sending him to that thinking it might be helpful for him since he had this kind of double incidence of OCTs. So I got to know him very well. You know, in researching your paper and, and reading some of the resources, it's pretty rare to have bilateral OCDs and then lateral. That makes it even more so. Does it matter someone's alignment if they have varus or valgus alignment? And also, I was hoping you might tell us a little bit about the history and etiology of OCDs in the knee. While working on this case study, I actually really didn't come across any research linking valgus alignment to OCD lesions specifically, but it really is logical thinking that that would increase your likelihood of getting especially like a medial femoral OCD lesion, which is the more common side, as you think like the pressure and shearing forces are going to be greater in that area. But I think what's kind of interesting is we actually see a lot more knee valgus in female athletes and females in general, whereas OCD lesions are found way more frequently in males than females. This patient in particular did not have any valgus, actually. And then I guess actually to give you info about the etiology, there's no like definitive cause of these OCD lesions that we know. But there is a few proposed etiologies out there, like repetitive microtrauma, there's genetic predisposition kind of tossed around, failure of like the vascular architecture, the perichondrium, and then even local ischemia, like after an injury to the area. In pediatrics, OCD lesions are usually seen in kids involved in very high levels of sports activities. This patient, for instance, was a really competitive basketball player. Uh, so a lot of people tend to favor the theory of that repetitive microtrauma. What are some common presenting complaints? What do they come in with? I guess knee pain, but what else? Yeah, sometimes it's as simple as that, just knee pain. But I would say that when we're specifically talking about OCDs in the knee, since obviously they can be found in other places, these ones will usually present like chronically in nature. 
worsening over several months. And then rarely the kid will come in with an acute injury that just really brought on the onset of pain for them, even though it probably was chronic in nature. The early stage lesions usually present more like nonspecific, kind of poorly localized knee pain that is much worse with activity, sometimes only with activity. And then as the lesion can progress and worsen, they'll tend to get more stiffness. They might get some swelling during or after activity. And then if they have a high-grade lesion, so it might even be like a loose body, they can experience like catching or locking of the knee, almost similar presentation to like a meniscus tear just without injury. And then on physical exam, sometimes they have swelling, increpitus, maybe, maybe not. They usually have full range of motion. And then they can have tenderness right over that medial or lateral femoral condyle when you put them in knee flexion, depending on which side the lesion is on. And then oftentimes it might even affect their gait. They might kind of laterally rotate the foot to take the weight off of that area. And you'll get that positive Wilson sign. Talking about some diagnostic studies, I don't think you always see a lucency on the x-ray. Is that right? Or is it very common to see a lucency? If the stage of the lesion is further along, it's definitely common to see it. You definitely don't have to see a lesion on x-ray. I would say more often than not, it probably is found, but it also can be missed. And sometimes it's actually just the natural anatomy of a kid. So that's why getting those bilateral x-rays is helpful, as sometimes you might think there's a lesion, but then you see the other side and it's actually anatomically the same. But if x-rays are negative and you really have like a high clinical suspicion for one, you can get an MRI to really confirm that. And sometimes that'll show it when an x-ray didn't. So if you see that lucency and they have the symptom, do you go straight to MRI at that point or do you give them a trial of conservative management? Yeah, so management, people do usually still get the MRI because even if you see it on x-ray, sometimes it'll appear to be maybe stable or intact. When you get the MRI, then you'll see there's actually like some space between the lesion and the bone itself. And so it is technically unstable, even though it's in the correct location where it should be. Whether or not you're doing surgical planning or just to stage it, most people will order the MRI. Is there an option to treat OCDs non-surgically? And if there is, how do you do it? Treatment is usually chosen non-op versus operatively based on the likelihood of whether or not it will heal non-operatively. People kind of determine that based off of skeletal maturity, characteristics of the OCD, like size or stability. So it's really determined uniquely to each patient. But the initial non-op treatment would be suggested for kids with stages one through three of the knee and generally consists of like restricted activities. You'll immobilize them for four to six weeks, maybe PT, and then gradual return to sports once they're asymptomatic. And then you kind of do these x-rays at increments of like six, 12 weeks, and then every three months to make sure it does look like it's healing. So this is kind of considered the standard of care with this like grades one through three, get this non-op management. But there's really no studies that show the efficacy of these like conservative methods and no one treatment method for either stable or unstable lesions has proven to be superior. So these guidelines are, you know, off of up-to-date Medscape, things like that. And I've seen a lot of grade three lesions that end up getting operated on. So I think it can be very provider dependent. Well, let's say that it either becomes unstable or it's a more severe stage defect. Tell us about the surgery. What happens in post-op recovery, racing crutches, return to sports, that sort of thing? Surgical management is usually done for the kids that have either the loose foreign body or if they've not responded to like four to six months of non-operative therapy. And there's a few different surgical techniques. 
there's arthroscopic drilling, metallic screw fixation, there's bioabsorbable fixation, microfracture, and chondrocyte transplants. The choice of technique depends on the patient's skeletal maturity, the stage of the fragment, the size of the lesion, and also really comes down to surgeon preference. So this is another one of the reasons that makes this kind of a hot topic is there's no true standard of care for treating these surgically and what method you're going to use. So this case in particular, the kid had OCD drilling and internal fixation on the new presenting one. And then his original was loose body removal and microfracture. Not management. If it's successful, your typical recovery is about like six months. And then with operative management, typical recovery also around five to six months, depending on patient compliance. But oftentimes, if you see like unsuccessful non-op management, so about four months, you start to talk about surgery, then they get the surgery. Now you're looking at 10 to 12 months of recovery. But the post-op protocols are really very individually determined by each surgeon, so they can vary. This patient in particular followed one surgeon's protocol and was put in a drop lock brace, locked in extension with toe touch weight bearing, as long as that was not painful for about five weeks post-op. So was using crutches. And then non-operatively, there are a lot of people that will immobilize in the brace for four to six weeks. And that's preference of the surgeon. The one I was working with tend to lean more towards allowing them to walk on it regularly if it wasn't painful. If it was painful, they would kind of grade to using crutches, no brace, toe-touch weight-bearing. Because if you use that brace, a lot of people will see the atrophy and a lot of the musculature. Sometimes you can do more harm than good in that way. Everyone will shut down no-impact running-cutting activities. When can they get back to sports? When can they get back to full activities, full-on, full steam ahead? That kind of plays into that six-month recovery. We usually have a really strong reliance on physical therapy. Post-op or non-op, you're going to use PT. It's extremely important to get these kids to recover. So they'll work on improving mechanics and maintaining strength while they're out of sports in safe ways, since we don't want to put any impact on the lesion. And then they're used to help gradually return these athletes to sport activities. And we'll have like a very strict plan they follow just based off of um, pain as a guide. That's great stuff. Thank you for that. Any other thoughts on OCD? These are just a really common pediatric injury, and I think it's great for everyone to keep them on the differential for all kiddos that kind of come in presenting with this chronic knee pain, stiffness, any catching or locking, because these are frequently misdiagnosed. So if they're caught earlier, they have a much higher rate of successful healing, and they have less intervention. I've worked with a surgeon for a long time that said, never feel guilty about ordering bilateral x-rays on a kid with knee pain. They're often incidentally found, and they are found instead of being missed. So it's really important for us to continue to research kind of preventative measures for these and the most appropriate management because there's still a lot of controversy over the standard of care for these. Maddie, thank you so much. Again, congratulations on your award and for your case study. I think we made a really good choice here. So thank you so much and look forward to welcoming you as a colleague. Hopefully orthopedics is top on your list. Thanks so much. Yeah, this is great. It's been a great opportunity. I loved coming out to Nashville and meeting everyone. And I think I can confidently say pediatric orthopedics is probably calling my name in about 11 months. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. It's that time of year for the annual PAOS practice and salary survey. All of our members, please take some time to complete this. Uh, It takes about 10 to 15 minutes. You can do it online. You access the link through the email. If you didn't get the email about the practice and salary survey, check your spam folder or you can 
contact us through the PAOS.org. It's a very important thing to do. This is one of our biggest benefits, and the more people that we have that uh, actually do this, the better. We look forward to having this content, and uh, please complete the survey.